0: A few weeks ago, I said uh, the, the, the phrase that God loves partnerships and that he works to bring about his sort of great grand story, to, to reconcile all things, to redeem the world, this project in the world, his, his project to bless the nations of this world, that he does this through partnerships, through people. To bring people back to himself, he does this through people like you and and me. That is part of his project. But but I want to reflect on this a little bit more, because we didn't really totally unpack that. And I want to do it through an unlikely character named Samson. If you don't know Samson, um, Samson uh, is in the book of Judges. It's a pretty unique story. Um, And the story is really about this guy who's what's called a Nazarite. That before he was even born on the scene, God comes to his mom and dad and basically says, look, Samson, the son you're about to have, he's going to be this Nazarite from birth. Now, all of us know what a Nazarite is, of course. Um, But if you don't, (laughs) let me refresh. Um, Nazarites were this vow that people would... And, and according to Scripture, it was actually a voluntary vow. You would choose to do this. You can go into it whenever you like. You can come out of the vow whenever you would like. And the question is, okay, well, why, why would you do it then? <clears throat> so it would be people who would feel like God has this particular calling on their life for, for a season. And for a certain season of time that God is calling them to be something special or unique in some ways and they would take this vow, and there would be certain trappings. We'll unpack those with it, and they, as if they need to be reminded of their vow, and and the people uh, around them need to be reminded of this vow, so they would take this Nazarite vow. And there are three rules that makes the person distinct or different during this season. They are set apart, and in some ways they are even more distinct, as if um, sort of the Jewish practices of tassels and beards and, and, and edges of the beard and all that were already not enough to make them different, they would be another step beyond that. And Samson, uh, Samson's a unique case because this is not a voluntary vow. As I said, normally this vow is a voluntary process, but here God shows up and says, this, this boy you're about to have will be a Nazarite for the rest of his life. Now let's jump back. So, number six. This is not the main text, but this is the, the setup of what a Nazarite is supposed to be in number six. And it says this verse one. And the Lord spoke to Moses. So, this is part of the giving of the law and instructions. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the people of Israel and state to them: When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord." So that's the idea of Nazarite vow, to to be separate, to be distinct from everybody else at this season. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice or grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of the separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skin. So rule number one, no grapes. No grapes no raisins, nothing like that, right? And, and to make sure they're not even tempted, not even the seeds of grapes, which is like the worst part of grapes to begin with. I, to this day, my wife and I have this conversation. We do not understand why they still sell seeded grapes and who is buying seeded grapes. Maybe someone can explain to me why they still sell those, because whenever I accidentally buy them, I just get angry at the grocery store. And so... Um, no seeds, no skins. So for whatever reason, people were just eating the skins off of a a grape. Uh, So that's not allowed. Let's keep going. All the days of the vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed uh, uh, for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair on his head grow long. So rule number two is some awesomely long hair. And so um, Nazarites will, will grow their hair certainly long. No cutting your hair. And in verse six, All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or his mother or brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of separation, he is holy to the Lord. So rule number three, no dead bodies, right? It's pretty clear. No killing, can't be around carcasses, none of that. So nothing dead. So no wine or grapes of any sort no cutting the hair, and no being around dead bodies. Now, let's look at Samson's life, uh, because he is unique. And let's look at least at the call of Samson. This will be Judges 13, starting at verse 2. And if you're following along in the Bible, it's like uh, the seventh book of the Bible. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So Samson is called by God to be this Nazarite. Now, this all exists in the book of Judges, and the book of Judges is this book where it's all these sort of cycles of Israel and and these different judges who come along, who are really helping Israel amidst their struggle to follow God. Israel falls into disobedience, destruction, there's ruin. They eventually cry out to God. God sends a judge to sort of um, um, help lead them, these various leaders, these men and women, to help lead them out of ruin and destruction Leads them to some form of salvation and restoration. All this sort of happens. This is a constant cycle in the book. But why Samson? And why the Nazarite vow? Like, all the other judges are more undescript, but Samson gets a lot of details, and he gets this vow. This vow that nobody else in history had been prescribed that it would be a lifetime teaching or lifetime commitment. Let's do a little bit of geography lesson too. Israel, as a country, as a place, this promised land from Abraham on, is this land that's essentially at the crossroads of three major continents. Like if you wanna have the greatest global impact, maybe God knew what he was doing and called his people to be at this major crossroads to the three largest continents sort of in the known world at the time, right? And you got Egypt and the powers that be in Egypt and Ethiopia and a couple other kingdoms. You had certainly everything to the east, um, the spice trade route, Mesopotamia, all that kind of stuff. And then you had Europe. And so um, this Via via Maris, the sort of main um, road by by the ocean or by the sea, is this major trade route. And if you want to impact all three continents, this is where you would set up shop. And God gives Israel this place. If he's going to bless the nations, he picked the most perfect place he could possibly do it in history at the time. And so they were called to this land. But on the next slide, they have all these tribes and all these places that they are called. So this is the distinct areas that all the 12 tribes were called to be. And the various Canaanite tribes that existed there were all sort of driven out. Now, if you notice on the bottom left, you have this whole area of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were not one of the seven Canaanite tribes that they were called to drive out. They were actually never called to drive the Philistines out necessarily. The Philistines were supposed to exist on the coastal plain in some ways, at least to be impacted by Israel. And so they exist there on, right on the coastline. They were waterfaring people. They loved the ocean. Um, that was part of who they were. Now, they were pretty advanced, uh, both militarily and even in cities. Sometimes we like to think of Goliath as sort of this, this backwoods, hairy guy that's sort of beastly, uh, but the Philistines were way more um, advanced in some ways than the Israelites were. And, and God called his people to be in these places. Now difficulty is some of these places but right up to the Philistines. And Israel really struggled to settle into these places, particularly this area um, kind of if you look at Judah here in this big green blob on the bottom. Yeah. A lot of that is mountain. And eventually you get sort of this foothill area where a lot of farmland is. And you get it up into Dan and to Ephraim, so the, the dark green and the, the purple. But Israel really struggled to ever settle into these areas, these, these, these uh, foothills, the Shephelah area of the country. And there's actually a lack of a lot of archaeological evidence that Dan ever really settled into their land. And we'll see why in a second. So Israel's struggling with this group called the Philistines, and they're struggling what to do with them. And God raises up this judge, and he's named Samson, as a Nazarite. He's going to be like, okay, this is my judge. I'm going to set him apart. And to reach or to deal with the Nazarites, God has not only put... Israel right here, or not to deal with the Philistines. God put Israel right here in the middle of it, at least, and God has taken care of assigning the tribes. Great. And the second part, now he's called a leader to remain distinct, different than the world around him, to interact with the Philistines. God raises up a judge to be different. And Samson totally succeeds, right? Like, if you read the story of Samson, it is crazy. It's a crazy story. And what you find throughout the life of Samson is complete and utter um, disregard for his vow. His whole life is a disregard for everything that he is called to be. He ends up in the land of the Philistines. Okay, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's where he's supposed to be. But then he sort of gets entangled with the Philistines. He finds a Philistine woman. And his parents are like, come on, Samson. Like, can't you find an Israelite as a wife? And he's like, no, Philistine woman, get her for me. If you read it, that's how it sort of reads. It's, it's pretty matter of fact. And he goes and gets a wife. And on the way to, uh, to, to, to interact with his wife, he, he, this lion uh, comes along and attacks him. Now, lions attacking, uh, not every time, but certainly there's multiple times in Scripture. 1 Kings 13, 20, Jeremiah 5, other places where a lion attacking is actually this, this picture of disobedience in the story. As if you're going the wrong way and you need to turn around. So is confronted by this line. And suddenly we read, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Now, if you've read Samson, you've got to have some questions in, this, in these chapters. I do. I sit there going like, why? why this guy? And why is the Spirit coming upon him? And what's going on? Like, is God leading Samson into disobedience? What is happening in these stories? Now, the difficulty is that the Hebrew phrasing in some of these sections is unique. It actually doesn't read the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. It actually reads the Spirit of the Lord quickened him or rushed him. Which may be more of a colloquialism in Hebrew to say the Spirit of the Lord sort of confronted him or brought him to a decision. Like suddenly there's awareness that there was a choice before him and he chose. And Samson has this like superhero-like strength in the story. He's supposed to be using it for God's purposes, but instead he tears a line apart because he can with his bare hands, now has a dead lion and blood likely all over him, which he's not supposed to do. And then on the way back from seeing his wife, he, uh, the carcass is laying on the side of the road, and for whatever reason, bees decided to make a nest in it, and uh, and there's honey, and, and him and his family are hungry, and so he goes into the lion carcass uh, and takes out the honey and feeds his family, which is not only a violation of Nazarite vow, it's a violation of kosher law to begin with. And so once again, Samson's just ignoring just everything. He just doesn't seem to care. Um, and even when he goes to marry, Samson puts on this feast. And the word feast, once again, in Hebrew, this is unique. This is not the common word for feast as if it's just a celebration. The word feast there is basically drunken debauchery. It's really what the word is. It's sort of a drinking party that he puts on there's consistent disregard, step after step after step after step, for Samson to remain set apart, to remain distinct. He fails at his job of being a Nazarite that God has called to do whatever the Nazarite vow is, to be distinct from the Philistines. Now, once again, we could talk about geography and history. As I said, um, the Philistines uh, were coastal people, but they eventually started taking over these foothills, these, these sort of low foothills that lead up into the mountains, the Judean mountain. And they would build these cities all over this area that the tribe of Dan and others should be in. And they built all these various cities. Now, it's important to note uh, in Israel, there's things called tells. That's why a city is called Tel Aviv. Um, there's tells. And tells are basically mounds. And they were mounds through history that cities got built upon. And usually, when Over time, when another group came in, they would build a new city upon the old city. And it would be layered and layered and layered. And so we even have images of what that looks like. And so these cities would be built upon each other. And so you have mounds that would grow as different people groups and different time frames came in, and these cities got built. And now they're able to go back to the time of, like, the judges and do some archaeological work. And what do they find? Well, the time of Judges in cities that should be in a place like Dan, they find pork bones. Tons and tons of pork bones, which should tell you that Israel was not doing what it should have been doing during this time frame, an indicator that Israel never really had much impact during the time of Judges in these foothills. By the time of David, pork bones were about 50-50. Uh, once we get to that layer of the city. So, Israel was a city, uh, this, these were Israelite cities at the time, but there's still plenty of pork being in, eaten. So, there's a question of how much are they really doing it. And at some point, it's, it's the difficulty of it's hard to live in these foothills. In the foothills that God's people were called to be, as they sort of butted up against a group like the Philistines, it was always a difficult prospect. And it's dangerous. There's just so many things to give into. Yet God's people are called to live in the foothills. And by the time of Hezekiah, you know how many pork bones they found during that time frame? Zero. Which is super impressive. Hezekiah led reforms to the northernmost region of Israel, to the southernmost. Now, to bring this a little bit into us, we are called to live in the foothills. As much as it was totally uncomfortable for someone like Dan, and, and often they would actually uh, uh, live up into the mountains to sort of not have to interact with the Philistines, but they were called to live right there, butting up against a culture, a world, a distinct people from them, to live in the football, to live in the foothills. But if you're gonna live in the foothills, you can't eat pork bones. Like that was the problem of Samson's life. Samson's life was full of pork bones. All he did was go to the land of pig bones and engage in pig bones. He wasn't distinct. There was nothing distinct about him. He was called to be set apart, but he wasn't living out his life as a Nazarite. And at the end of the story, the tension that, that ends up being drawn out when Samson finally dies, um, and yes, he has this victory, and the book of Hebrews, we'll call him a hero for it, but you're going to find out that the tribe of Dan hightails it out of town, and they never, ever settle into that area. You, you have a map. Here's a map. So the Philistine area. Dan's no longer there, and if you look at it as far north as you could possibly get, Dan goes, you know what, God, you've called me to this area but this is hard work, and we don't want to deal with the Philistines. And they go as far away as they could and go all the way to the north. They totally disobey and abandon their calling that God had given them. Now, if you know how history will eventually play out, that's like the worst place to possibly be. Because eventually the Assyrians and eventually the Babylonians, all these groups will come to town, and Dan gets the brunt of almost all the major attacks on Israel. They abandon the call that God gave them. God wanted them to impact the Philistines. God put them there to impact the Philistines. And even while they're there, guess what? Big brother right over their shoulder is Judah. So if they were even worried about an attack, they've got sort of the military might of Israel just behind them. But they didn't seize their calling, and they went up north. And the statement is, really, we can't abandon our there's a challenge. There's a tension of living in the foothills, living in that Shephelah area to impact the world around us. But we can't abandon the call. Dan has safety in their view, and, and they go into sort of their holy huddles and disengage with the Philistines. But God had called them right there to impact the world that they were called into. But we also can't go to the foothills. The world of Philistines and have pig bones. (laughs) We have to be in the middle of the mess and yet remain distinct. That is one of the lessons, I think, from the Nazarite call on Samson. Now, if we're doing good exegesis, we should find this mirrored in Jesus's life as well. Otherwise, we're not doing a very good job with it. And it's interesting even how Jesus uses culture. And one of the points kind of later in Matthew, Jesus is engaging with the leaders. And he has all these woes uh, for these leaders, actually seven of them. We're going to cover that um, next week. We're going to start a series that that will run us through Lent, uh, talking about sort of the last week of Jesus's life. Uh, And this confrontation will be part of that story. So Jesus interacts with the Pharisees uh, and these leaders. And and he calls them hypocrites, hypocritos, which in Jesus's time is just the word actors. Now, we have learned to adopt the, the word uh, hypocrite today, but in their time, it just meant actor. It was the word for somebody who acted on the stage in Greek theater. So he looked at these Pharisees and say, woe to you, you actors. Woe to you who are just acting this out, wanting the applause, wanting the praise of others. And at the end of these, all these woes, Jesus has this quote that is in some ways, from a play by this Greek writer, Euripides, from the 5th century B.C. It was one of the most commonly shown Greek plays. People would have known it. It had been rewritten a ton of times. And the version that we have from the 1st century B.C. to about A.D. Um, has this quote in it, this quote, a closing scene where a woman stands over Troy as it's burning and says, Troy, Troy, how I have called you to, like, like, a, um, like a wide-winged bird to come under my wings, but you refuse. And so, to this teaching, this whole group that Jesus is accusing, these Pharisees says, woe to you, you actors, woe to you, your actors, and then he stands up there and quotes theater in Matthew 23 and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered uh, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, I don't have the picture that Jesus is sitting there in Greek theater eating popcorn, enjoying it all the time, or anything like that, but he's certainly aware of it. He certainly understands the cultural norms in the culture that he is engaging with. Another teaching, he even quotes Aesop's Fables, which a lot of us probably had to read when we were kids, which was written in Stardust, fully Greek, completely uh, Greek culture. But at one point, in Matthew 11, he says, but what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling on their playmates. And this is sort of the quote from it. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. And so he knows it. He knows his culture. He's able to engage in culture. He's able to use it for the ends in order to speak truth to the world that he is engaging with. He still has full awareness of it. Paul in Athens, one of the more famous moments of this, he ends up at a place called the Areopagus that we often call Mars Hill, and he engages with these Greek philosophers. And he doesn't show up quoting a bunch of Bible verses. In other cities, he certainly comes in and goes verse by verse by verse. He's teaching in the synagogues, things like that. But here, he doesn't exactly do that. He quotes their poets. He talks philosophy. He meets them on their turf and speaks the language in order to bring the truths of God to the darkness of the lies that they are living in. He's a student of culture, but this is the tension that we have to live in because it's not safe. You can ask Dan, <laughs> you can ask Samson, it's not safe, but God hasn't called us to safety. I love First Peter 2. It says, um, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, or the NIV reads, to live such good lives among the pagans, so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, it's hard to live a good life amongst the pagans unless you actually live amongst the pagans, right? And the pagans are supposed to see a distinct, different life. Something better than what they have in a sort of medium that they can understand. That is what God has called us to be. That is what salt and light look like. look like. And the tension for us is that we're called metaphorically to be Nazarites, to be set apart. And I think there's four implications to it all. First, we cannot impact our culture if we do not remain distinct. Like we cannot impact the world if we don't remain distinct. Like what makes you different? I think this is a challenge for most of us. We sit maybe in church at times like a Pharisee, like we're religious, but then we go into the world like a uh, Herodian. We've, we've adopted all the cultural norms of the world around us. And we ha- maybe have a wonderful morality that we think sets us apart, but it actually doesn't change how we dress, how we shop, how we change, what our browser, browser history looks like, what entertainment absorbs, all that kind of stuff. We look, as much as we say we want to live distinct, we look just like the world around us. And we cannot impact a culture around us if we look just like the culture around us. And if there's nothing different in the way we live, there's nothing you and I are going to do to change the culture around us. I think the second is that we cannot impact our culture if we disengage. We can't do it, Dan did. We can't just go up north and hope everything will be okay and find a holy huddle. And Jesus even claims that that if we sort of separate ourselves and just be like, oh, we'll, just, we'll be right, we'll just go and do our own thing, just like, when I show up, there'll be questions. What'd you do with your life? Did you feed the hungry? Clothe the, clothe the naked? Visit the prisons? Not, not ask, hey, did you stay out of prison? <laughs> did you impact the world as a citizen of another kingdom? We must have something to say to our culture something to offer that they don't already possess. So what we bring to the world may not be our wonderful legislation, right? If we just get the right people voted in, and then the world will be made right suddenly. I think sometimes that's the philosophy, but Jesus told us something would be very different about us, and it isn't our politics. Even more than morality itself. He says, here's, here's what's going to distinguish distinct. Be distinct. It's going to be love. It's going to make you distinct from the world. What the world is going to notice about you is love. That you would be and we would be a people who could teach like enemy love, forgiveness. Because i tell you what, culture has not taught me how to love my enemies. Culture fails time and time again to teach me how to love my enemies. But I have a good savior who certainly taught who could sit on the cross in the face of sinners and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Who could take someone like myself in sin, in rebellion, an enemy, as Ephesians would call me, and turn me into a child of his to love me, to redeem me, to take my sin and wash it clean. That is enemy love. And the culture can't teach that, but we, can and we have so many areas where the culture struggles to teach a better way but jesus time and time again has taught us it's not getting the right people voted in because guess what everyone in the world is trying to do that one the culture is trying to do that one too but i pray that our way would be different It would be the way of love love for god and love for others I do find it interesting, some of the stats that are out right now, and I think I shared them on my Insta uh, yesterday, but um, Josh Howerton put some together, the statistics and research that really do challenge some of the norms and the cultural, um, um, kind of the the, the common ideas around Christians and the church right now. And I'll put all this under the category of committed Christians, which are uh, Christians that profess Jesus, have regular involvement in church life, whatever it is. And the culture will teach that there's a hundred different ways to be satisfied in your marriage, yet satisfaction in marriage is higher amongst those who are committed Christians. Significantly higher. Culture will try to teach about improved mental health. Yet, you know, the statistics of 2020, the only group that had improved mental health were regularly committed Christians. The only group in America. Culture will try to teach generosity and care for others, yet committed Christians still consistently give 27 to 52 times more than the rest of the world. Culture will try to teach about women's rights, roles, and value, yet amongst committed Christians there's a decrease of 50% overall of abuse, and relational statistics of, the, uh, um, of uh, overall relational satisfaction is the highest in gender-traditional church-going women. Culture tries to teach that the best ways to raise a child is to instill value and dignity, and that's great. Yet kids raised in committed Christian homes have significant increases in all the big three dangers of adolescence, which is depression, substance abuse, and promiscuity. So it's great to throw a lot of stones at the church, and that's happening a lot. But at some point, the statistics are lining up that if we stay faithful, and the main undergirding of it all is a love for God and a love for each other, Like all those statistics, almost all of them fall in a relational category. And at some point, we offer, as Nazarites in some ways, a distinct and and unique view. And we have to stand up sometimes when the culture says, hey, the church is no different than everybody else, to go, that's not true. Now, how you define church might be part of the problem, sure. But at some point, when Christians live out their calling and live into what God has designed us to be, there is actual flourishing in life. And lastly, we have to be students of our culture so we can bring the message in a medium that is understood. The gospel does its work through that. We can't just shout from the mountaintop the things that we think are true that we live it out we step into the foothills and are not afraid of the Philistines. But we're also very comfortable to go, look, we're going to look differently. We're going to act differently. We're going to be distinct. But in God's great project to reconcile this world, God's great project to bless the nations, he's going to use you and he's going to use me. And we have to walk that fine line of understanding and knowing the world around us, yet being distinct and unique in the ways that God has called us to be. And in that beautiful fine line, I think that's also where we find Christ. That God could have sat in heaven and sort of fixed it all. We talked about this last week, the sort of snap to, to set all things good. But yet we find a God who wrapped himself in flesh, who came down, who walked that gap between the divine and the, the human as a fully human, fully God, Jesus walking among us. He showed us self-sacrificial love. He showed us enemy love. He showed us love that would also speak to a woman and say, sin no more. All of it. The true way to walk that line between heaven and earth. And we are invited into that by his work on the cross. That when Jesus went to that cross, we were stuck in the earthly world, unable to understand and to get back to the presence of the Lord. Yet through Jesus, by faith in what he accomplished on the cross, he made a way. Multiple times to his disciples, as he's wrapping up his life here, he tells him, look, I'm going to my father. And the invitation is that they are going to be able to come too. So when we take communion, we remember that. And that in so doing, we also remember that the center of history is not the victory of a king in a political sense, taking a throne to reestablish Israel as a nation state. It is a sacrifice, a criminal's death, and a forgiveness and call out for the cross that flipped this world upside down. And now God's great goal of Reconciling all things and blessing the nations can now be accomplished through you and me by the power of the Spirit in us. So as we go here, may we remember every piece of your life has a purpose and a mission to it. Everything you consume on TV or whatever it is should fall under the filter of God's design and desire to be a people set apart with a mission to reach the Philistines of our world. Let me pray, and we'll come forward and take communion. God, I am thankful that we have these tremendous stories, like someone like Samson, and that we can reflect back and see in us the temptation to eat pig bones and to deny the vows that we have as people under your covenant. But God, we also understand that there's tremendous grace that the hall of faith in the book of Hebrews also includes Samson's name and that is good news for the rest of us because we walk also in ways that aren't consistent, aren't in uh, in line with always what you desire for us but that's why you came. You knew our hearts. And the good news is, God, you reconcile and love us, even in our disobedience. Because you see us through the lens of your Son, who stands in the gap. So God, we're so thankful, may we never forget what was accomplished on that cross as we take communion now and celebrate someone else paid the the price that we were called to pay amen